Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. October is Monster Month here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, and this week's monster is Dracula. We are going to listen to the adaptation done by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. By 1938, 21-year-old Orson Welles had already gained notoriety on stage as a renegade director who shocked the theater establishment with a production of Macbeth set in Haiti featuring an all-black cast. Subsequent performances by Welles' Mercury Theater included a controversial labor union opera and a staging of Julius Caesar set in fascist Italy. Critics were huffy, but ticket sales were brisk. On the heels of his success, CBS invited Wells to adapt classic literature into one-hour radio broadcasts, beginning with Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. As the story goes, Wells changed his mind a week before the premiere and decided to adapt Dracula instead. Bram Stoker's novel has been adapted countless times for stage and screen, but many consider Wells' version to be the definitive adaptation. Like the novel, Wells presents the story in an epistolary form, told through diary entries, newspaper accounts, and telegrams. Due to the one-hour running time, Wells is forced to cut elements of the novel and reduce some scenes to single lines, but the spirit, tone, and structure of the novel is almost completely intact. So, let's delve into Dracula from the Mercury Theater on the Air from 1938. Does it follow the original book too much? Is transforming into various animals and the power of hypnosis still scary, or is it just nature's way? Well, that's what we're here to find out. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Mercury Theatre on the Air presents Orson Welles as Count Dracula in his own version of Bram Stoker's great novel, Dracula. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Arthur Seward. I'm here tonight to bear witness to the truth of certain events which you may find it hard to believe, but I ask you to believe them. I have here certain documents, telegrams, clippings from the press of the day, memoranda and letters in various hands. All needless matters have been eliminated, so that a history almost at variance with the possibilities of contemporary belief may stand forth as simple fact. I present you first with excerpts from the private journal of Jonathan Harker. I, Jonathan Harker, lawyer's clerk, article to Peter Hawkins, Esquire of Exeter, England, am writing this journal in the hope that if misfortune overtakes me, it may one day come to the eyes of those who love me. I set out from London on the last day of April to visit one of our clients in Eastern Europe. On May the 3rd, I arrived in Budapest and came after nightfall to Klausenburg on the borders of Transylvania. At Bistritz, there was a letter of welcome for me from our client, informing me that his carriage would await me at the Borgo Pass. 
It was signed, Dracula. Kalesh with four horses had drawn up beside us. Let me help you, sir. The coachman smiled, and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth as white as ivory. We began to move. I looked back. The coach and his load of passengers had vanished from sight. We swept into the darkness of the past. I struck a match. It was within a few minutes of midnight. And then a dog began to howl somewhere far down the road. The wind was rising, moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees flashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall. The baying of wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though, as though they were closing round us every side. We kept on ascending, always ascending. The howling of wolves was going left. Presently, it ceased altogether. And just then, the moon broke through the black clouds, and by its light, I, I saw around us a ring of wolves running alongside the carriage, in silence, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long, sinewy limbs and shaggy hair. Welcome to my house. I must have fallen asleep. The carriage had pulled up in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle. The coachman was nowhere to be seen. Welcome to my house. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. His face was strong, very strong, aquiline. The mouth, so far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking with peculiarly sharp white teeth. Mm. You hear me, Mr. Harker? Uh, the wolf? The children of the night, as you say, Mr. Harker. The wolves. Listen. Mm, come now. There are many things you must tell me tomorrow. Of England and of the estate there you have purchased for me. Why, uh, yes. The estate is called Carfax, I believe. Yes, that is so. But now I will detain you no longer. You will find your room in readiness. And I advise you not to leave it. During the night... 
castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. I explored. There are doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all of them locked. The door to the great hall, the door to the courtyard, every door in the castle is closed, bolted against me. The castle of Dracula is a prison, and I am a prisoner. The next night, I couldn't sleep. So after a few hours, I got up and lighting my candle, I placed my shaving mirror on the dressing table and was just beginning to shave. You seem restless, Mr. Harker. I hadn't seen him, although the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. I turned to the glass again. Count Dracula was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. It was blank. I started and cut myself on the side of the throat. The blood was trickling down my neck. Count, my mirror! The blood! The blood! Wipe the blood from your face, Mr. Harker. And take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. When I awoke, I found most of my things were gone. My passport, my notes, my letter of credit. I could find no trace of them anywhere. And my door is locked from the outside. There is work of some kind going on in the castle. Now and then I hear the faraway muffled sound of mattock and spade. And last night, the second of the predated letters which Dracula made me write, the second of that series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth went forth. Count Dracula. Yes, my young friend. Well... What of me? When am I free? When can I leave this place? Free? Mr. Harker, you're always free. You want to leave? Would you like to leave tonight? Yes, yes, in God's name. My dear young friend, not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will. Come, follow me. The door seems to be bolted half strange. The door is locked. Well, in God's name, open it. As you will, Mr. Harker. You English have a proverb which is very close to my heart. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Good night, Mr. Harker. <laughs> the door is shut, Mr. Harker. I take it. You will remain. morning, June the 30th. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. Oh, God preserve my sanity. I have never seen Count Dracula by day. At sunrise, at the first cock crow, he is gone. I... I don't understand these things. I only know that the wolves obey him, and that he is a man with hair on the palm of his hand, with sharp teeth, and no blood in his face. He casts no shadow. He cannot be seen in a glass. And he moves like a bat across the sheer face of the castle walls. He eats no food and is mortally afraid of the crucifix. As I write this, I hear in the courtyard the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. And 
there is in the passageway below a sound of heavy boxes being set down. Boxes shaped like coffins. And I know what they hold. Boxes are filled with holy earth from the chapel beneath the castle. Is the last box being nailed down. And now I hear the heavy feet tramping again. The door shut. The chains rattle. and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips. Help! 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 The wagons have gone. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone in the castle. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Seward. Mr. Harker's journal terminates at this point. I now present in evidence a clipping dated August 8th of that year from the Yorkshire Telegraph from our correspondent in Whitby. One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record was experienced here today. The weather has been somewhat sultry, but Saturday evening was fine, the band was playing, the piers were crowded with holidaymakers, the wind fell away entirely during the evening, and there was a dead calm. There were but few lights at sea. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner under full canvas, which was seemingly going westward. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. Then, without warning, the tempest broke. And there, with all sails set, was the foreign schooner rushing with terrific speed toward the shore. A searchlight was turned on her. And there, lashed to the helm, was a corpse with drooping head which swayed horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. A moment later, she crashed. And then a strange thing was seen. At the very instant she touched, a huge dog sprang up on deck from below and running forward, jumped from the bow onto the sand and making straight up the east cliff toward the graveyard, vanished into the night. The coast guard going aboard at dawn found the dead man fastened to a spoke of the wheel. Tightly clutched in one hand was a crucifix. The man must have been dead for quite two days. In the pocket of the dead man's coat was found a bottle, carefully corked, containing a roll of paper. This proved to be an addendum to the ship's log. It was found on board only a small amount of cargo and that of a most unusual nature. Apparently the ship carried nothing but earth. Common earth. Packed away in wooden boxes. Shaped much like coffins. Russian flag, Black Sea, to Whitby. July 6th. Finished taking in cargo, a queer cargo, boxes of earth. At noon, set sail, east wind, fresh, crew, four hands, two mates, cook, and myself, captain. July 11th. Entered Bosporus. At dark, passed through Dardanelles. Mate reported in morning that one of crew, Balyodin, was missing. Took Larbert watch eight bells last night. She was relieved by Chilegian. Never came to his bunk. something aboard oh. this ship. No, no. <laughs> Don't laugh, Captain. In the rain last night, oh. a tall, thin man go up companion way and along the deck forward and disappeared. When I go to the bow, no one. And the hatchways 
All closed. July 22nd. Rough weather last three days. All hands busy with sails. No time be frightened. Past Gibraltar and out through straits. All well, July 24th. Last night, another hand was lost. Disappeared. My Kalichas, leave all March midnight. Then we never see him again. Oh, double watch now. If I don't take watch alone no more. Double watch. Double watch. July 29th. Had single watch tonight as crew too tired to double. When morning comes... Hey! Like all the others. The mate and I have agreed to go armed henceforth, July 30th. Last night, we are nearing England. Weather fine. All sails set. Captain! Captain! The men in the watch are missing! Most missing! Now, only self and mate and one hand left to work ship. August 3rd. Two days of fog and not a sail sighted. At midnight, I went to relieve the man at wheel, and when I got to it, found no one there. It's here. I know it now. I saw it. Like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bars looking out. I gave it the knife, and my knife went through it. What? Empty as air. What is it? What are you talking about? It's here, and I'll find it. It's in the hold, in one of those boxes of earth. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. And see. He is mad. Stark raving mad. It's no use my trying to stop him. He can't hurt those big boxes. They are invoiced as common earth. <laughs> He's there. Down in the cold. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. August 4th. I am all alone on my ship. And still the fog. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed... And in the dimness of the night, I saw it. I saw him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a sailor in the blue water. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail. And along with them, I shall tie that which it dare not touch, my crucifix. I am growing weaker, and the night is coming on. God and the Blessed Virgin help a poor ignorant soul trying to do his duty. Keyword, Perfit, to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. Lucy was 10 run, alarming condition. 
Cannot diagnose. Come at once. Seward. Telegram. When Helsing Amsterdam to Seward Percy. I'm on my way to you. Please arrange the examination immediately my arrival from Helsing. Ladies and gentlemen, I must now explain that six months before the events recorded here, I had become engaged to a young lady, Lucy Westenra. We were to have been married in the spring. My old teacher, Professor Van Helsing, arrived at four the next afternoon. I took him at once to Lucy's house. She lay in a bed asleep. She was ghastly, chalkily pale. The red seemed to have gone even from her lips and gums. And the bones of her face stood out. Young miss is bad. Very bad. She must have blood or she will die. Yet she is not anemic. The qualitative analysis of her blood gives quite normal condition. It is strange. I do not like to think how strange. Look! My God, her throat, look! The black velvet band that she always wore had dragged up a little and showed a red mark on her throat. Just over the external jugular vein were two punctures, not large, but not wholesome-looking. The edges were white and worn-looking. Well? Well, what is it, Professor? What's wrong with her? Speak frankly. You can tell me the worst. I wish I could, Stuart. I wish I could. But I do not dare... But... Won't you tell me anything? I will tell you this. Your young lady is in a danger greater than this. You must believe me. If you leave her for one moment and harm befalls, you will not sleep easy thereafter. September 8th. I sat up all night with Lucy. Arthur, I'm afraid. My dear, you can sleep tonight. I'm here watching you. Nothing can happen. And I promise if any sign of bad dreams, if I see anything, I'll wake you at once. You will? Will you really? Then I'll sleep. I sat all night by her bedside. And she did not wake once during the night, although... Her bows or a bat or something flapped almost angrily against the window panes. September 11th. Still quoting from my private journals. It's this time that I received a message from Perfleet. Read 10.20 p.m. St. John's Hospital. Serious complications. Case 891. Your immediate presence, London. Imperative. I had no choice. Sometime later, a paper was found among Lucy Westenra's belongings. I write this and leave it to be seen so that no one may by any chance get into trouble through me. I went to bed as usual, taking care that the window was closed, as Dr. Van Helsing had directed. About two in the morning, I awakened. I went to the door, crawled out. Arthur! Arthur! There was no answer. Alone. I dare not go out. House seemed empty. The air is full of specks, floating, circling in the draft from the window. And the light burns blue and dim. What am I to do? Something very sweet and very bitter all around me. Nothing sinking into deep water. 
September 12th. Late. Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. We found her sprawled on the floor. There was a draft in the room from the broken window. Her throat was bare, showing the two wounds, looking horribly white and mangled. We are too late, my friend. We have failed. God's will be done. She's dying. Yes. She's dying. Stay beside her. It will make much difference, mark me. Whether she dies conscious or in her sleep. It was late in the afternoon before she opened her eyes. Arthur, oh my love, I'm so glad you've come. I took her hand and knelt beside her. Her breath came and went like a tired, peaceful child. And then the light from the setting sun fell on her face, and then, insensibly, a strange change came over her. Her eyes grew suddenly dull and hard. Her breathing was heavy. The mouth opened, and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look large and sharp. Arthur, oh, my love, I'm so glad you've come. Kiss me. Bend down and kiss me. Not for your life. Not for your living soul as hers. Lucy! She's dead. Poor girl. There's peace for at last. The end. Not so. It is only the beginning. Wait and see. September 25th. A Hempstead mystery. The Kensington Horror, the stabbing woman, and the woman in black are vividly recalled to mind by a series of events that have taken place recently in the neighborhood of Hempstead. Several cases have occurred of young children straying from home or failing to return from their playing on the heath. In all these cases, the children have given us their excuse that they have been with a beautiful lady who offered them chocolate. In each case, the child was found to be slightly torn or wounded in the throat. The wound seemed such as might be made by a rat or a small dog. The hamster horror. Another child injured by the beautiful lady. We have just received intelligence that another child missed last night was only discovered late in the morning. It has the same tiny wound in throat. Well, Stuart, what do you think of that? Do you mean to tell me, my friend, that you still have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of? Nervous prostration, following great loss and waste of blood. And how was the blood lost or wasted? You are a clever man, my friend, and a good doctor. But you do not believe that there are things that you cannot understand. You are wrong, Stuart. 
Are you aware of all the mysteries of life and death? Can you tell me why in the pampas there are bats that come at night and open the veins of cattle and horses and suck dry those veins? Hmm? How in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang on trees all day and then when the sailors sleep on deck because it is hot, flit down on them and then in the morning are found dead men as white as Miss Lucy was? I understand none of these things. After tonight, Seward, if you dare to come with me, perhaps then you will understand. September 29th. Before dawn. Now it is done. And I would sooner die a thousand deaths than live again through what I did this night. We will spend the night you and I here in this churchyard where Miss Lucy is buried. We enter the tomb, then we open the coffin. You shall yet be convinced. Take care, Van Helsing. Miss Lucy is dead, is it not so? Then there can be no wrong to her, but if she is not dead. With some difficulty, we found the West Denver tomb. I took up my place behind a yew tree. On one side of the tomb, Van Helsing on the other. Chilled and frightened. Suddenly, I saw something moving between two yew trees. A dim, white figure which held something at its breast. The figure stopped. I could not see the face, for it was bent down over what I saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep, or a dog as it lies before the fire. And dreams. Then the thing saw us. She drew back with an angry snarl. The lovely, blood-stained mouth grew to an open square. If ever a face meant death, I saw it at that moment. Then suddenly she turned and vanished in the direction of the tomb. Child is not harmed. We leave him in a safe place where the police find him. There's more to do. Come. Now we were in the tomb. Then in the coffin. The thing lay... Like a nightmare of Lucy, the pointed teeth, a blood-stained mouth. Then Helsing never looked up. From his bag, he took out a book, his operating knives, a heavy hammer, and a round wooden stake, some two or three inches thick, sharpened to a fine point, and hardened over a fire. Stuart! The life of this unhappy woman is just begun. When she become what you call undead, there comes with a change the curse of immortality. She cannot die, but must go on age after age adding new victims because all that die from the praying of the undead become themselves undead and prey on others. So the circle goes on, ever widening as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water. But if this lady, this undead, be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall be again free. Tell me, what am I to do? Take this stake in your left hand. The hammer in your right. Yes. Place the point over the heart. Yes. Then, when I begin the prayer for the dead, in God's name, strike. Are you ready? Now. Domine Jesu Christe, Fili de Vivi, Kim Manus Tuas Ex Voluntate Patri. On the morning of July 11th, 
A man was found on the border of Transylvania. He talked wildly of wolves and boxes of earth and blood. He gave his name as Jonathan Harker. In the hospital at Clausenburg, he improved sufficiently to make possible his removal to England. I'm still quoting from my own personal papers. But there his condition remained so serious that he was committed for observation to a private ward in my hospital at Perseid. Here he did so well that in three weeks he was completely recovered. It was during this time that his wife, Minna Harker, brought to the attention of Dr. Van Helsing and myself the journal that her husband had kept while a prisoner in the castle of a certain Count Dracula in Transylvania. I have before me the record of a meeting that took place in my study in Perseid, transcribed by Minna Harker. October 1st. Meeting began soon after 8. Jonathan next to me. Dr. Seward opposite to Van Helsing at the head of the table. My friend, there are such things as vampires. Had I known at first what now I know, one so precious life had been spared to many of us who love her. The vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong that he can direct all the elements. The storm, the fog, the thunder. He can command all the meaner things. The moth and bat, the owl and the fox and the wolf. How then are we to begin our strike to destroy him? How shall we find his place? And having found it, how can we destroy him? My friends, it is a terrible task that we undertake. To fail here is not mere life or death. If we fail, we become as him. Foul things of the night as him. What do you say? I answer for myself. Come in. I'm with you. The professor laid a small golden crucifix on the table. We took hands and our solemn pact was made. My friends, we too are not without strength. The vampire flourishes on the blood of the living. Without this, he cannot live. He throws no shadow. He makes no reflection in a mirror. He can transform himself to a wolf, to a bat. He can come on moonlight rays as elemental dust he can see in the dark. He can do all these things. Yet he is not free. His power ceases at the coming of the day. Then, until night, he must remain in the shape in which he finds himself... And except in his coffin home, in those earth boxes, he cannot rest. When we can confine him in his coffin, then, my friends, if we obey what we know, we will destroy him. At that moment, something sat wildly against the window, then... Did you hit it? I don't know. We looked out of the window. Against the black sky, we could see nothing. Data on our position. From the Count's castle in Transylvania to Whitby came 50 boxes of earth. All of these, to our certain knowledge, were delivered at Carfax. Recently, 12 of these boxes have been removed. First step, ascertain whether all the rest remain in the deserted house next door or whether any more have been removed. We must trace each of these boxes and sterilize the earth with holy water so that he can no longer seek safety in it. And we must hurry. The events of the next few days, 
are described in Jonathan Harker's journal. October 2nd, 5 a.m., just returned from the empty house. Left Mina here at home. Well, we've done our work at Carfax. The place was filthy. The air stagnant and foul and alive with rats. We counted the boxes. Only 38 of them. And over each one, the professor went through his same mysterious work. It was dawn when we got back. I found Mina asleep. She looks paler than usual. October 2nd. Soon after they left, I fell asleep. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs. And then there was silence. I got up and looked out of the window. There was a thin streak of white mist moving across the grass along the wall of the house. It dawned on me that the air in the room was heavy and dank and cold. The gaslight came only like a tiny red spark through the fog. I could see through my eyelids. The mist grew thicker and thicker. Then, as I looked, the spark divided and seemed to shine on me through the fog like two red eyes. You shall be flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, blood of my blood. October 2nd, 8 p.m. We're on the track. Twelve boxes were delivered last week to an empty house at 347 Piccadilly. My dear friend, until the sun sets tonight, Dracula must retain whatever form he now has. We have this day to hunt out all his slayers and sterilize them. Then he will have no place where he can move and hide. But we have only until sunset. The house in Piccadilly was empty. Like the one at Pursley, the same sickening smell was in the air. On the table, we found a clothes brush, a brush, and a comb, and a basin. The latter containing dirty water, which was reddened as if with blood. The boxes are back here. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. Only eleven. There's a twelfth box somewhere. Gentlemen, it is after six. The sun is setting. We have no time to lose. He will return at any moment. Open the boxes. It is he! The window! You waste your bullet, gentlemen. You think you baffle me. You with your pale faces all in a row like sheep in a butcher's. You think you have left me without a place to rest. But I have more. And time is on my side. The one you love is mine already. I have known her. Already my mark is on her throat. Flesh of my flesh. Blood of my blood. She is with me always. Over land. Or sea. We must find that last remaining box, gentlemen. We must find it. As long as that earth exists in pure, as long as there remains one place of refuge for Dracula, there is no safety and no peace for any soul in England. And for the undead, never peace so long as he lives. Blood of my blood. Blood of my blood. Mina, 
How do you know that? How do you know that? Quiet, quiet. With me. With me always. Over land and sea. Nina, darling, how did you know that Dracula said those... I don't know. The word just came. Strange. There are times when somehow I feel that I'm with him. At sunset? Yes. Just at sunset. And again at sunrise. Dr. Van Helsing, if I could... If at that time, you... Have you the courage? Courage for what? What do you mean? Dr. Van Helsing here will question her. I will question her, yes. In a state of hypnosis. The one you love is already mine, he said. She is with me always, over land or sea. Ah, Count Dracula. Perhaps she will betray you if she is really with you, this one we love. Who knows? If she is really with you over land or sea. Blood of my blood. Mina. Yes? Answer me, Mina. Are you with him? Yes, I am with him. Where are you? I do not know. It is all dark. What do you hear? The lapping of water. I can hear it on the outside. Then you are on a ship? Yes. What else do you hear? There is the creaking of an anchor What chain. are you doing? Still. Oh, so still. It is like death. Here is a report from Matt and Peabody. Ship brokers. Dated October 5th, according to Lloyd's List, the only sailing ship that left for the Black Sea yesterday was the Tsarina Katrina, bound for Varna. Some hours before she sailed, a man came alongside, all in black, driving a cart with a great box in it. This he lifted down single-handed and carried below. No one remembers having seen him after that as heavy mist came up over Doolittle Dock until sailing time. The rest of London Harbor remained completely clear. Our plans are made. The average sailing time from London to the Black Sea is three weeks. We can travel overland to the same place in three days. We shall be there waiting for him when he arrives. October 15th, arrive barn about five o'clock. Mina seems stronger. Every morning before sunrise and just before sunset, she speaks to Van Helsing in a trance. Are you with him, Mina? Tell me, are you with him? I am with him. What can you see? Nothing. All is dark. What can you hear? I can hear the waves lapping against the ship and the water rushing by. The wind is high. I can hear it in the shrouds and the bow throws back the foam. So, the Tsarina Katrina is still at sea, hastening on her way to Varna. The Count cannot cross warning water. So we cannot leave the ship without being observed. What do you hear, Mina? Happy wind and rushing water. Darkness. Darkness and wind. A whole week of waiting. Daily telegram from Lloyd. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Rushing water and creeping mud. Darkness. Darkness and wind. October 24th. Telegram. Lloyd, London, Sulaka. Sorry, Nick, I've been reported this morning. 
Lorena Katrina in heavy fog reported entering Galatz Harbor at one o'clock today. Galatz! is 38 hours from here, and the first train for Galatz leaves at 6.30 tomorrow morning. My friends, we have lost... Serena Katrina. A man come aboard with an order an hour before sunup. Receive a box for a party by the name of Dracula. That is Pepper's a rate. Uh, Emmanuel Hillsheim, his name was. Mr. Hillsheim? Yes. You went out of the box yesterday. I gave it to Kyloff by order. Kyloff. Mr. Kyloff? Kyloff. This morning they find him dead inside the churchyard of St. Peter. They find him dead. With his throat torn open. October 30th evening. There are two ways in which Dracula can get back to his own place. By land or by water. We've examined the map and find the most likely river is the Ceres. You and I, see what will charter a steam launch and follow him up the river. Van Helsing and Mina will take the train to Veresti, and from there they will... From there we shall go in the track where Harker went, from Bistrich over to Borgo. If you have not caught him before, we shall be awaiting Dracula there. We can run at good speed up the river at night. There's plenty of water and the banks are wide apart. November 1st, evening. No news all day. We hear that a big boat went up the river before us, going at more than usual speed. November 4th. All day driving. The country gets wilder as we go. By morning, we shall reach the Borgo Park. November the 4th, evening. We've left the launch. We've got horses and we follow on the track along the river. We are armed. Look! Quick! There they are now! Heading west! With the dawn, we could see the Slovaks some miles before us, dashing along the river with their wagons. On it is the great box. a long way all around us. Far off, beyond the white waste of snow, was the river like a black ribbon curling. Between us and the river, not afar off, came a group of men, mounted slowback, hurrying along. In the midst of them was a wagon which swept from side to side. On the wagon was a great box. Look! 
he sees before him. Following fire, coming up from the south. Stewart and Parker, the slow bus with their heavy wagon, are losing their ground. Now the horsemen are not more than a mile behind. Now the wagon is quite close to us. We can see the gray bus playing gravely. Now they are almost upon us. Now has happened a strange thing. The wagon smashed into a great rock buried in the snow, lost its front wheels, and turned over on its side, jammed against the stone. The horses tore loose from their traces and bolted, and the slow bucks scatter and vanish after them. Then silence. Silence like comes uh, after ringing a bell. Look. His face. It is Dracula. Walled out stiff and twisted in the smear of his own holy earth. The bucks, in falling, has emptied the dirt onto the snow. His face is old looking. The skin is like paper. Dr. Seward, there's no time. Look at the sun. Sunset. In one minute there's darkness and he is forever lost to us. Have you the stake of wood and the hammer? Yes. Now, Seward, pray for us. Kneel down and pray. Harker, the stake of wood over his heart. Be not afraid, Harker. Do not look into his eyes. The hammer. Now, Harker, strike. Strike. Flesh. Flesh of my flesh. Guilt of my guilt. Death of my death. Speak and be manifest in the instant. Of your master's peril. Elements of darkness. Rain. Evil wind. Mist. And mold. And tempest. Strike! The others couldn't. But somehow I can hear him. Speaking. Behind his eyes. Claw. Wing. Tooth. Scale. Kiss your flesh, death of my death, dead and undead. The hand of the living is over your master. Console him, my children. This instant is no longer than the space between two heartbeats. But the night is not here, and I am lonely. Come to your master, my children. Beguile him now in the instant of his peril. Beguile him with the sound of your names. Claw. Wing. Tooth. Scale. Tissue of flesh. Strike! Strike! There is one very dear to me who has not answered. My love. Mina. There is less than a minute between me and the night. You must speak for me. You must speak with my art. Give them to me! Jonathan, give them to me! Just take the wood and the hammer! I shall never forget that moment. The look on poor Mina's face as she stood there. The angry scar standing out on her throat. Her eyes like living coals in the last red of the sunset. She had torn the stake and the hammer out of my hands with the strength of an animal. Mina! Do you know what you've done, woman? Do you know what you've done to us? You've released him, the evil is Look! The sun! As we looked down at Dracula... The eyes saw the sinking sun, and the hate in them turned to triumph. Flesh of my flesh, come to me. 
my love. Come into the night and the darkness. You have served me well, my love. My bride, my... Ladies and gentlemen, all the evidence in this case is now before you. I've added nothing, and to the best of my knowledge, I've omitted nothing that might help to throw light on the extraordinary events of the year 1891, which culminated on that terrible evening in the Borgo Pass. There remains only this one last report. When Mina Hager seized the stake and hammer from her husband, I believe she was under some form of hypnosis. She herself remembers nothing. But whatever influence was at work on her, she must, at the last moment, have rejected it. For at the exact instant the sun disappeared, it was Mina Harker who drove the stake through the heart of the thing that called itself Dracula. At that same instant, even as we looked... The wound on the side of her throat was no more. As for Dracula, before the scream of the creature had died from our ears, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. In that final moment of dissolution, there was in the face a look of peace such as I never could have imagined might have rested there. Tonight's production of Dracula by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater was the first of nine CBS broadcasts in which this brilliant group will bring to life a series of great narratives, all presented in the immediacy of the first-person singular. In presenting them each Monday evening at this time during the summer season, the Columbia Network is bringing a complete theatrical producing company to the air for the first time. And now here is the director to tell you about next week's Mercury Theater production, Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen... What are your favorite stories? If there is one you're particularly fond of and would like to hear on the air, will you please write me about it? Next week, the Mercury Theater is going to tell you Robert Louis Stevenson's exciting yarn about pirates and the sea, Treasure Island. Until then, just in case Count Dracula has left you a little apprehensive, one word of comfort. When you go to bed tonight, don't worry. Put out the lights and go to sleep. All right, you can rest peacefully. That's just a sound effect. There. Over there in the shadow, see? It's nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I think it's nothing. But always remember, ladies and gentlemen, there are wolves. There are vampires. Such things do exist. Columbia Broadcasting System.
That was Dracula from Mercury Theater on the Air, originally broadcast in 1938, here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. And that is our final of the uh, Monster Month series as we are heading to Halloween and we finished with Dracula, a full hour. Usually these are half hour long. Mm -hmm. Um, We discussed this in the past about me, uh, as far as being scared, my thing that gets me every time are vampires especially dracula especially the story depending on the adaptation of it and how they do it however everybody that does an adaptation of dracula sticks really close to the book well vampires can be disconnected from dracula unlike frankenstein can't be disconnected from the mary shelley novel in the same way so if we want to do something different from dracula we can just do other stories about vampires and i think some of the excitement in adapting dracula somewhat authentically is that it has this discovery in it these are people who aren't sure what they're dealing with and 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 we already know about vampires and it seems like old hat to us but i like this adaptation because of the urgency and this mystery of what is this creature? And I've seen that it, it does these weird things. It climbs the walls of the castle like a bat. And so it, right. it feels like you're discovering this along with the characters again. It's sort of bringing the excitement of vampires back, which are pretty dull now. And also they have moved away from the status of villain. We've identified them more as sort of characters who are, are, are victims or romantic characters. Mm-hmm. And so it was fun to go back and see vampires as diabolical monsters, which yeah. is what they are in Dracula. There's also, I think, a, a sort of momentum in the adaptations that if adaptations tend to be accurate and faithful, it makes iconic moments out of each little bit of the story and iconic characters out of some of the characters that you might necessarily disregard in some other case. So. Harker's time in Dracula's castle is really iconic, even though in the movie it was Renfield in the castle. The suitors of Lucy are all very iconic, even though they, in this adaptation, very wisely mold them all into one person. So you have so many of these little iconic bits, it becomes harder to let them go, and more interesting, like you say, and how do we invigorate this? How do we really capture that element? And the pace in this adaptation is insane. Two weeks ago, we listened to Dark Fantasy, which is from 1942, and that seems archaic compared to this 1938 production of Dracula. Right. When you start going back and listening to lots of old radio the way we're doing for this podcast, you start to really see why people were blown away by Orson Welles. What he was doing was singular and ahead of its time. You just said that the pace of this is, you know, and you love that. Uh, That is an issue I have with this. It moves a little too fast in the sense of there are moments in this that need a little explanation of where we are right now. A lot of the things that I, I feel like that's a weakness in this radio show is a weakness of the book that Wells is compensating for. I just needed a sentence or two that said, and now... Here's the ship's captain talking. And I don't mean it that direct, but it goes from narration of Seward to the ship's captain without really an explanation to that's who's talking now. You have to catch up. Right. They say and I don't want extension to of the ship's log, voice of the captain, that you have to bridge that gap. Correct. Yeah. And there's a lot of moments we're bridging the gap in this. I just need a couple of words to let me know that now we're here. However, I do like the pace of how frantic it is. 
like, okay, we've got to catch this guy. We've got to figure out who he is. And they just keep moving and moving and moving. So I agree with that. It just, it was too fast. This thing reminded me of something extremely modern. This is what we would expect today out of a TV show or movie where we cut away from the in-between parts. Like, we don't need to see people traveling. We don't need to know who this voice is. We just jump and we figure it out. And and figuring out what's the next thing, where are we, is part of what engaged me, not what jarred me out of it. I can see why it would for you, but that's that was what I found the most exciting. It didn't jar me out of it. It's the idea that I'm I'm four or five sentences into a a narration or whatever's happening or a scene before I figure out where we are. And I feel like I've missed Mm -hmm. all that trying to figure out where we are mm-hmm. which could have been very simply done and i'm using the same one over and over again but okay now this is the captain of the ship talking i mean I all you need there ship. is captain's log stardate blah 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 <laughs> but you Wait, do need wouldn't the that captain's be awesome? log. <laughs> just little tiny things and this is nitpicky and you guys are going to give me grief but this is where <laughs> i have struggled with the harry potter movies because they are made for people who have read the books and tend to skip little tiny sentences that will help you from scene to scene to go, now we're here and now this, mm-hmm. because they say, you've read the book, you now know you're in the the Hall of Gagamel or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Tree of Woe. The, 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 Gargamel? The is that from the Smurfs? Did yes. you flash back to the, the Hall Sm- of Gargamel? It took he me has a, second. a hall. <laughs> yes. An issue of ad- adapting large works into film length, often the decision gets made. Enough of our audience is going to be familiar with the work originally that we can cut a few corners. Correct. And that's what I disagree with. Because mm-hmm. even though I've read the book, I don't have it memorized and I tend to forget mm-hmm. all those details. And so, yes, I, oh, yeah, 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 it comes. But what if someone hadn't read the book? Just a nitpicky thing. And that does also risk the backlash of people saying, I know who that is. You don't need to tell me. Right. I suppose. That's how they talk. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Wells was very intentionally pushing the envelope. I think he was well aware that he was doing that again at 1930. But I mean, not just pushing pushing how much he could cram into an hour, but I think he wanted to see how much will people follow along with me? How much can I literally experiment with this form? He was probably listening to radio at the time and thinking, this is so tedious because he was Orson Welles and really <laughs> snobby. That's how he talks. Yes. <laughs> and I think one of the challenges that this adaptation overcomes is keeping that epistolatory um, <laughs> format of this is in the mm-hmm. form of journals, letters, uh, but not making it dull. Like the original book kind of is. <laughs> yes. Of making it very immediate and palpable. And I thought I had read somewhere that that was the original title of this whole series was First Person Singular. That was part of the idea behind all of the Mercury Theater in this this summer series of shows was that he was going to take this literature and he was going to make it in the first person. He was going to make it very immediate. He was going to make the characters speaking to the audiences at home. And we've listened to a lot of these uh, old radio shows from this era, the late 30s, early 40s, and that wasn't done a lot. We've complained about it, where it's people in dialogue saying, oh, no, he has a gun. Right. We better raise our hands. So this was Orson Welles really, again, pushing the envelope of what radio had been doing right. previous to this. Let's talk about Orson Welles real quick. I love and respect Orson Welles. What he has brought to us is invaluable. He is an amazing person. He's a pompous a-hole is what he you're is, getting to. <laughs> he is really difficult for me to listen to as an actor 
Uh, my wife pointed out when I brought that up, she said, yeah, he's from not only the stage, but he's from the really old time version of being on mm -hmm. the stage. And that whole idea of not being so theatrical as radio had figured out mm -hmm. by this time mm -hmm. and certainly in the 40s, uh, it was a much more uh, conversational approach to uh, performance and not so over the top. He never quite figured that out. And it makes it really hard for me to get beyond that. I have to keep telling myself, this is a genius. This is an amazing man. He has done crazy good things. He's a really good writer. I just wish he wasn't in it. <laughs> really? Because I like his performance. You like that? I think his Dracula is really great. Once Seward gets... is what bothered me. I know what you're I saying, though. If you compare him to Chapel from uh, Quiet, Please... Right. Or Bill Johnstone as the shadow, even, which even had a, a flourish to it, but it was still palatable in, in its reality. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, still wasn't as boring and <laughs> drawn out. See, I think and... Seward has this urgency. Well, you I, know, I will say I, he does have an urgency. Yeah, he's not the greatest actor to have ever lived. His, no. his, his greatest talents are elsewhere. I agree with you, so I don't want to right. get in this locked in this argument where I'm going to say, Orson Welles, greatest actor to ever walk the earth. But I think here he has some strong intentions from the script. And, and, and I think as the author of the script, he is pushing his agenda as an actor. And, and occasionally yeah. that strain shows in Seward. Um, however, his yeah. Dracula has this nice thing where it's very deep voice. It is really malevolent, yet he never pushes it to the point of ridiculousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is really hard when you're doing Dracula. Yep. Right. He has this sort of image and this model of the brilliant man and the artiste and a lot of theater people sort of fall in that mold. And because these are theater people that we work with, I know there are separate from Orson Welles as an actual human. The image gets to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I've lived with the echoes of that image in people I know and work mm -hmm. with. Yeah. No yeah. in the room, of course. <laughs> Joshua. <laughs> One of the things I love about Orson Welles so much is he he provides both those things because he has this real artistic integrity in the work he does, yet he provides you such a great fun to make fun of him. <laughs> it's like it's yes. like he gives you both because because he is right. absurd and ridiculous in in He's interviews. A character of himself. Uh, oh, when he comes on at the end, it's like yes. I, I hope I didn't scare you. You just want Dracula to descend upon him, <laughs> rip him apart. In Stoker's Dracula, Dracula's Eastern European. Mm -hmm. When Lugosi plays the classic, brilliant portrayal <laughs> of Dracula in the movie, which, God, that movie still stands the test of time. It's still terrifying. Sorry, but that's another topic. Um, <laughs> and Lugosi, of course, can barely speak English. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as a digression, I mean, just you know how he did that movie is that they would say his lines <laughs> yeah. to him. Mm-hmm. And they would say, go. And he would just say them again, not knowing what he was saying. <laughs> yes. So he didn't have to learn English and learn what he was saying. So he'd say, I want to drink your blood, which wasn't in the movie. But And then they'd go, go. And he'd go, I want to drink your blood. So he was just mimicking, but gave us that accent. No accent with Orson in this. No Eastern European There's accent. There's a hint of one, I think. Barely. He's keeping it really subtle. Well, what do you think of that is what I'm asking. Bugs I, me a little bit. I love his Dracula. I, I did think too. it has this yeah. subtle hint of his origin, but he's also lived for how long? 
True. We don't know where all he's been around the world. And I, yeah, I think if he he did this radio adaptation and just did an imitation of Bela Lugosi, who it's 1938, was still around, that would be really weird. It's not like doing doing an adaptation now. You might make that choice to imitate Bela Lugosi, but in 1938, it's well, just... No, he's a peer. Thick Eastern European <laughs> accent and... He was committed enough to it, and it surpassed the parody. Potential. But I mean, but that's long after Bela Lugosi is gone. Yes, for example, I, I think Orson Welles made the exact right choice for 1938 to do it completely his own way because that movie was still really strong in people's minds. Right. So they would have maybe said, "Why are you doing? Yeah, why didn't you just get Bela Lugosi? Right. Yeah. He's not doing anything." It's not, <laughs> that, by that point, it wasn't standard. You did yeah. it that way. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Nice, really insightful, Joshua. Good job. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> on the on the topic though of the the movie, Bela Lugosi, phenomenal, iconic performance. But the best one in the movie, Dwight Fry as Renfield. Oh, yeah. yeah, I was so sad to see Renfield not in this adaptation. Absent from this, yeah, they made good cuts. It's a good adaptation. I was just I mean, sorry to see that go. It makes sense because Mina serves that same purpose. And if she you're does. cutting it down to an hour, who's this person who has some insight into Dracula? And ultimately, I, I do. I love Renfield, but. Um, yes. His focus on Mina, and I think it is interesting to bring up, I love the change that Mina is the one who kills Dracula. And that oh, yeah. is a change, obviously, from the, the novel. Yeah, that's an interesting And they actually lose a stake? An actual uh, stake, yeah, instead of a, what is it, a bowie, bowie knife? knife? Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the most terrifying aspects to the Dracula story is, for me, Lucy. When we're introduced to these things, we're children. So uh, the effect that it had on me that there is this woman who then turned her attention to children. So she becomes a vampire, and she doesn't go and get other adults. For whatever reason, she goes and gets children, and then they tag along with her and follow her around in the woods or whatever, and there's these gaggle of vampire kids. Lucy is more terrifying than Dracula. I think Lucy is the big part of what made this novel famous in the first place. Well, she's Carmilla. Well, and also that transition from young, flirtatious woman to sexual figure. A little naughty alluring for the folks in the 19th century. Yep. <laughs> but the evil of I'm going to subsist on children. Yeah, and I mean... Yeah. I That's think, a choice, right? Well, it's easy pickings. Right, <laughs> which makes her terrible. Yeah, yeah, and that description of Dr. Seward seeing her walking toward her tomb with the small child in her arms just feeding off of it for 1938 is pretty distressing stuff yeah there, there any last thoughts well there's just so much to say about it but a lot of it is about dracula as a whole and not mm -hmm. all about this adaptation but i think it is a a truly excellent adaptation i would say if i had defaulted anywhere i would say the chase at the end gets a little long when they're moving from place to place and there's trains and galloping and it keeps the energy really well but like i almost would say again being the armchair writer fit a missing scene from the book in, fit a renfield in somewhere and cut that cross-country chase down a little that was the only place where it dragged for me, despite the fact that the actors were just working their butts <laughs> off. And speaking of working, as I was listening to this, I could smell the sweat from the Foley artists. Yes. They don't, oh they don't goodness, get a yes. break ever in nope. this. They are just constant. And they aren't just little like doorbell, knock on the door. It's like carriages and rattling and chains and mm -hmm. dogs bang. And it's just like constant. This adaptation, I also want to point out, more so than I think any other adaptation I've ever seen or read or anything like that, really portrayed Harker as a hero. Those echoing yells when he's abandoned there 
Oh, those are good. That was really impressive. And then, even though I know the story, I was so enthralled to like, oh, he survived. He mm-hmm. somehow climbed down that wall yeah. and crawled to the border of Pennsylvania. Uh, and even though in the rest of the story, he, it doesn't necessarily he doesn't do much. do much except deliver his journal of It's Dracula, the title of my journal. It's Dracula. <laughs> um, but it really uh, made me enthusiastic about that character in a way that I haven't been in any other adaptation. Well, let's uh, put this to the vote. Tim. Classic. Yeah. Classic. Uh, Classic all the way. Like I mean, yeah. if you're talking stands the test of time, this in the pace, in the jumps that Orson Welles expects you to take as a listener, this is like 50 years ahead of its time in the way this story is told. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, not only today, but for Monster Month. And uh, have a happy Halloween, everybody. I think is a perfect way to head into Halloween with this. If you would like to learn more about us, visit ghoulishdelights.com. Uh, there you can find other episodes of this podcast, and you can find out information about our live shows. Um, we do live shows from time to time, recreating these very scripts on stage for your entertainment in the Twin Cities area. Yes, um, and if you have some time, don't write an iTunes review. Just don't. Stay away from iTunes. I'm trying reverse psychology, guys, just to see nice. if it gets us more reviews. Pretty clever, huh? Nice. Let's see like, if that works. Yeah. yeah. Not going to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> Next time, it is Tim's pick. What are we going to hear? We'll be hearing Dracula in White from the series Spine Chillers. Until then. Look out! It's all right. You can rest peacefully. That's just a sound effect. <laughs>